If you have your Bibles, let's turn in the Gospel of Luke to the 18th chapter where we left off last week. And if you need a Bible while we're turning there, just hold your hand up. There's some guys coming up the aisle and they'll be happy to give you one to follow along. Luke 18, and last week we finished in verse 17, so we'll pick back up in Luke 18, verse 18, and we're going to go down as far as verse 30 this morning. And if you're turned there together with me, let's stand as we do together out of respect for the Word of God, and let me read this next portion of Scripture in Luke's Gospel for Bible study. Luke 18, beginning in the verse 18, says, Now a certain ruler asked him, that's Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept for my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. And he said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Father, we set your word before you this morning. And we thank you that you've given us your word, that you're a God who loves us enough to not be distant and silent, but to be speaking personally into each and every one of our lives, that we might know you and know the truth, And we pray as we study the Word of God this morning that your Holy Spirit be our teacher. Lord, you know where each one of us is at this morning and exactly what it is you want to say to us and your love for us. So we pray, prepare us to hear what you want to say. And we ask that you would speak just powerfully and personally into each and every one of our lives who've assembled in this place this morning. We believe you have something to say, Lord. Speak now to our hearts and bless your word. For we ask believing that's what you want to do in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, a little less than 20 years ago, uh, I was dating Trish. And at that time as I was dating her, uh, her father actually was the pastor of Calvary Chapel of Vineland. It wasn't Frank Ippolito. He took over uh, after 
her father, my father-in-law now, left and went back to California after planning and pastoring that church for some time. I was attending Calvary Chapel Vineland and was dating Trish, the pastor's daughter, uh, which creates fear and intrepidation in and of itself. And uh, as we were dating for some time, my father-in-law, and at that time I was serving in the church too, I actually was leading the youth ministry, teaching the high school Bible study, and was also overseeing the junior high ministry, and, and my father-in-law called me and he asked if he could have a meeting with me. He didn't tell me what it was, he just said, I want to have a meeting with you. And I, at that time, instantly thought, man, I am in trouble one or two ways. Either being an inexperienced Bible teacher, I'm teaching some false doctrine, and, and he's going to lop off my head, or I've blown it with the dating thing here, and, and he's going to really read me the riot act for you know, what's going on with his daughter. And we had been getting pretty serious at that time, and potentially it was pretty obvious, considering and praying about marriage and so forth. And... As we had this meeting together, contrary to how the way things usually work, where a guy goes to a father out of respect and says, hey, may I please have permission to marry your daughter? Uh, he starts to, in this conversation, uh, basically encourage and ask me to marry his daughter. Uh, and, and basically, in a real reverse way, kind of taking me off guard, he started telling me, look, I think you're the right guy, and, and if that's what your intention is, listen, commit. Sign your name on the dotted line. Marry her. I want you to marry her. Don't ask me. I'm telling you. I want you to, I want you to marry my daughter. I think you're the right guy for her. And at that time, I said that, you know, obviously that I loved her, and I did feel it was God's will to marry her, and that I sincerely wanted to, but... And then I proceeded to give to him this list of reasons of why I wanted to, and I believed it was God's will. I didn't question it, but I just tried to explain to him, look, I just I can't right now. Just not right now. And I then began to rattle off this list of excuses, which really were sincere ideas of my concerns of being responsible. And I'm very old-fashioned. I said, look, I just, I need to know that I can adequately provide for her and that it'll all work out and I can take care of her. And, and I went through this list of very responsible, very rational reasons why, though I believed it was God and I wanted to, that I was concerned that it, it just not right now. It just, it, it wouldn't, I don't see how it could just work right now at this season and stage and so forth. And, and he kept interrupting me. I remember the first time he did, he, he interrupted me in the middle of rattling that off. And he looked at me and he said, Tony, are you willing to do whatever it takes? And I went right back into my list and started, you know, giving off the reasons again. And he kept interrupting. And he said, are you willing to do whatever it takes. And he kept interrupting. And I remember as he said that, it was like I knew God was speaking to me because he said, look, if you know it's God's plan, then you need to be willing to make the choice and make the commitment to step into what you know is God's plan for you and you got to trust God with all the rest of the details. You need to be willing, if you're willing to do whatever it takes, then God will do whatever is necessary to make it all work out. And I think sometimes in spiritual life and spiritual commitments, that statement is really applicable. I think many a times in our own lives, we find ourselves presented with spiritual opportunities, the person considering 
accepting Jesus Christ and becoming a follower, or even as believers, once we're walking with the Lord, God presents us opportunities regarding spiritual matters, and we, you know how that goes. We're struggling with making the decision, and God lets us make the decision. He doesn't violate our free will. God's a gentleman. That's his love. And, and as we're struggling to make that decision regarding a spiritual opportunity, I think sometimes in the midst of that, the Lord speaks to us and he says, are you willing to do whatever it takes? Are you willing to do whatever it takes? Because truth of the matter is, following Jesus to some extent will always involve a step of faith. It's the way God's designed it. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, the Bible says. And following Jesus will always involve, whether it's the first commitment to Him as Savior and Lord, or it's continually walking with Him and pursuing His plan, it will always involve a step of faith. And together with that, it always includes being willing to do whatever it takes to follow through with what it is that God is asking us to do in pursuing what His intention is. It may be leaving whatever is necessary, being willing to forsake something earthly and temporal in order to pursue what is spiritual and eternal. And many a times the Lord challenges us in the exact same way. And here we have Jesus in our story, again, interacting with two different individuals, this rich young ruler who comes to him, and then Peter who engages after he sees that conversation. And in both encounters and both conversation... Both men obviously had to make a personal choice regarding their commitment to follow Jesus in what it was that he had intended for them. And you notice as we read it that they make very different decisions regarding following Jesus and receiving eternal life. And we'll see that as we go through. Again, remember in verse 17, as we were kind of leaving off last week, Jesus, the last sentence and statement we heard him say in verse 17 is, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Jesus says, in order to enter the kingdom of God, a person must become like a little child. That is, they must be willing to just become humble and cast aside their pride and cast aside their concern for, well, what will people think? And, and even cast aside their independence and, and be willing, like a little child, to just take the Word of God at face value. And that's what little children are like. You can tell little children just the most crazy story. You tell a child something, they say, okay. And, and they just believe. And that's the challenge of us as we get older because we're logical and we've got to rationalize it out. And, for, and a child, you just tell them something and they believe it. And that's why we have to become like a little child. God says this is the gospel message. This is the truth. And, and, and God wants us like a little child to say, okay, Lord, in my innocence, I just believe it as it is and I'm going to trust you to accomplish what your word says. And, and notice with me, if you would, in verse 17, that Jesus emphasizes that the kingdom of God is something to be received. He says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God. Now, I point this out because it's a real good backdrop for where we're going this morning. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child. The kingdom of God, eternal life, Jesus says, is something to be received. It's not something to be acquired. It's not something to be earned. It's not something to be worked for or achieved through religious labors or efforts, good and godly as those things are. It is the gift of God offered to man freely, something to be received as a gift that God offers. 
in his love towards each and every one of us despite our unworthiness. Romans 6.23 would be a good verse to jot down because Romans 6.23 says that the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That God offers us the gift of eternal life and admission and entrance into eternal life is received like a little child by coming to Jesus Christ and receiving the forgiveness of our sins and receiving eternal life, though we're unworthy, just receiving it freely by believing and accepting what God is offering as a free gift. Now, with that in our minds, interesting, this next encounter, verse 18, now a certain ruler, it says, asks Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do? Interesting. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So we're introduced to this man who comes to Jesus seeking Jesus for spiritual guidance and help. I think because he has a sense of dissatisfaction in his soul and something within him, this sense of emptiness and spiritual dissatisfaction prompts him to go to Jesus now because he realizes something's missing and he goes to Jesus because of the dissatisfaction spiritually he senses within himself. Now we often call this man the rich young ruler. We're told by Luke here that he is a certain type of ruler. We're told in the text as we read down further in verse 23 that he was very rich. And we're told in Matthew's account of this exact same story that this, young, uh, that this man was also young. And that's why we call this guy in this encounter the rich young ruler. Now think with me. This guy basically has the three things that are the most longed for, highly esteemed, uh, coveted after qualities among any culture and any people. What does he have? He has power, he has wealth, and the guy has youth on top of that. He has power, wealth, and youth. These are the three things that people pursue, people chase after, that people esteem as important, that people envy those who have. He has power, he has wealth, and he has youth. He's a ruler indicates he has a position he's a man of authority he's someone of rank he's someone who rules over other people he tells them what to do they respond to him and he has a measure of authority in his life he's a man of power and a man of influence a man of importance he has power he also has tremendous wealth it says here not only that he's rich but the bible always speaks the truth it says He's very rich. Now, when the Bible says that somebody's very rich, it indicates that they're beyond just rich, that they're very rich. He has quite a bit of freedom and luxury in the amount of wealth that he's acquired in his life at this time. Now, oftentimes, when somebody acquires power and wealth, many a times, by the time they acquire power and the time they acquire wealth, they're too tired or maybe too old to really enjoy the benefits of it. People work their life and they finally get that place of power and they finally accumulate their good amount of wealth and then they're so tired from doing it or, or they're such a latter stage of life that they're too tired to really even enjoy the wealth and the power that they finally achieved. Not with this guy. The Bible tells us here that this guy is still young. So he has power and he has wealth already and he's still got his youth. He's a rather young man. He doesn't have to spend money to try and regain his youth. He's still got his youth. And he's at a young stage in his life and he already 
by the blessing and grace of God at a young stage, he's already got power and he's already got wealth. These are the three things you certainly can't diminish in the American culture that people long for, that people covet after, that people spend their time and energy efforts aspiring towards power. Man, if I could just have power, it'd be so nice to have just a little more power to not always have to listen to other people, but to be able to be the one to, to tell other people, well, I wish I could have a, a position where I could be the important one and tell people what to do. And, and people long for, oh, this must be so nice to be somebody in power, to have a little authority, to have wealth. Oh, well, if I could just have wealth, it would free up so many burdens and concerns. And, 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 and people work hard and, and think there's something so important to aspire after, not only being rich, but very rich. There's, and we, we pursue that. And youthfulness. Man, we live in a culture where people put such a high priority, the time, money, effort, what people spend to try and stay young and regain their youth and all those kind of things. This is what people look at and when they see somebody who's youthful and somebody who's powerful and somebody who's wealthy, people go, oh man, wow, they are so blessed. Man, they've got it made. They're so blessed. And one would think, therefore, that this guy who's rich, powerful, and young, man, he's got all three. One would think that this guy would be the most content, satisfied man walking around the planet. This guy's got money, he's got power, and he's young enough to still enjoy the use of his power and the blessing of his money and the things that he can enjoy. You think he'd be the most satisfied man walking around, yet it seems that there's still an inward emptiness inside of him that's there and very evident that he's wrestling with it despite the good life that he lived. The use of his power, the enjoyment of his wealth and his young age, despite all that, something in his conscience is still nagging him. And it's still nagging him within and he's wrestling that there's still something more to this life. All this power and all this wealth and, and, and it is you know, pretty one. I'm still young and I can still enjoy this and make good use of it. And something within him still nagging, telling him I'm still missing something. And there's a sense in him at this point where he senses, I, st I think I need God in my life. And we find him now going to Jesus. And I don't know about you, but maybe you can relate in some ways to this man's emptiness this morning. Maybe there was a point in your life where though you seem like that with the position you had and kind of the status you'd arrived to financially and, and a number of different factors, it seemed like, man, compared to other people, you had it pretty good and, and you should be pretty content and satisfied and yet there was something within you that, why am I still so empty though? I mean, I got a good life, but why am I so empty still when I lay my head down on my pillow at night? What's missing still? Maybe you're a young person this morning and, and, and maybe you've got quite a bit and you're quite blessed, but there's something in you, that, but something's still missing. Why am I still empty? Because see, apart from God, there will always be an emptiness. There's a God-shaped void in every person's life that cannot be filled by anything in this world. And wisely, this man does the right thing. He goes to Jesus. He goes to Jesus with his emptiness, and it tells us that he goes to Jesus saying to him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice, first of all, that his intentions kind of seem good. 
The problem is his interpretation of how spiritual life works is incorrect. He thinks that he must do something. Or let's say he thinks that he can do something to acquire spiritual life with God and eternal life after he dies. Notice what he says to Jesus, what shall I do? Now that doesn't surprise me because no doubt this guy was probably a very diligent and an ambitious man. It's probably how he got to the place where he was. He worked hard and he'd outworked everybody else. And through that, his obtaining this current status of power and wealth at a rather young age, if this guy, if there was such a thing in Israel in that day uh, as the Mr. Achievement Award in Israel, he probably would have won it a few years in a row. Because at a young age, he already had acquired great power and great wealth. And he was used to doing things. That's how you gain things. That's how you achieve things. That's how you accomplish and get what you want. So logically, I don't fault him. Logically, he concludes, okay, so what do I have to do to get right with God then? What do I have to do to make sure that I, I, same way I make my reservation at the five-star hotel, what do I got to do to make my reservation up there in heaven just tell me what I got to do what's it going to cost me what do I got to give what do I need to accomplish what do I need to achieve I understand how that works what do I got to do just tell me what I got to do and I'll make sure that I achieve that before I die unfortunately many people just like this guy have the same incorrect idea about spiritual life and how to get their sins forgiven and how ultimately we can get to heaven, they think, what do I have to do? What do we do? What work? What accomplishment? What achievement? The Bible teaches that we are not supposed to do anything. The Bible teaches that we can't do anything. Because the Word of God declares that the only necessary and only satisfactory work was already done by the Lord Jesus Christ who entered into this world as God in human flesh to rescue sinful people that couldn't redeem or rescue themselves. And Jesus came to this earth, lived in a body of flesh as a man, yet being fully God, as the perfect mediator between God and sinful man. He lived the perfect life and did what we couldn't do. He lived perfection and sinlessly. And then he died as our substitute, poured out his blood as he died on the cross and rose again to heaven. And God says... That is what needed to be done. Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished. So the only necessary and satisfactory work was already done in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And therefore, for you and I, there's nothing we can do but receive what's already been done for us, like a little child. In John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29, they came to Jesus and said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He sent. What should we do? We want to do the works of God. What are the works of God? Jesus says, The work, singular of God. Here's your one job, Jesus says. Believe. Believe in whom the Father has sent to be the Savior and what He has done for you. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it this way, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The Bible says we're saved by grace. We're unworthy of it. We're saved by faith. That's our only part we believe. And it says it's the gift of God, not of works. The Bible says righteousness could be attained through the law, then Christ died in vain. If there was something that we could do, why would God 
come to this earth and let his son live in flesh and be spit on and be mocked and and beaten and hung naked and abused and ashamed on a cross and and why would god subject his son to that if there was something i could just do you know jump through a few hoops or go capture the five golden apples from some dragon or something if there's something we could do why would god there's nothing we can do it's a gift there's nothing you could do so god says it's a gift you got to be willing to receive it as a gift and God offers it to us freely. A gift is not worked for. We're going to distribute Christmas gifts at Christmas time. That's what people do. You don't work for the gift that you get. Someone who loves you pays for your gift. They purchase it and they freely offer it to you and hope that you'll thankfully receive it and be blessed by it. So a gift of God, which is eternal life, is embracing God's offer of salvation through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And just believing upon it, that's how we receive it. It is by believing in faith, that's how we receive the gift of God, which is eternal life. And this is what Jesus is now trying to convey to this man in the remainder of our account. This is what he wants to convey to this guy. It's not about doing. It's about receiving. And he wants to communicate in a creative way where this man is at. He says, what shall I do that I may obtain, inherit eternal life. Verse 19, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. So Jesus begins by dealing with the way that he had addressed Jesus. He came to Jesus and called him good teacher. Now, that sounded pretty respectful, but in the Jewish culture, that would be really odd. Now, I wonder, maybe, again, taking the consideration humanity and this man and so forth, maybe he comes to Jesus saying, good teacher, what do you want me to do? Maybe he's just kind of trying to grease the gears with Jesus a little bit, use a little flattery in the same way you, you learn how to work people to, to get what you want out of them. Maybe he's just calling Jesus good teacher because the Jews would never use the term good to refer to a rabbi or for any man, for that matter. They would reserve the word good for God alone. They would never call a man good. So it's a little peculiar that this man comes and calls Jesus as a rabbi, good teacher. That's why we see Jesus here asking him this question that he does, saying to him, as he calls him good teacher, why do you call me good, Jesus says. You know that no one is good but one, and that's God. So Jesus affirms an important truth that no man is good. No man is righteous. No human being is righteous or good. We are all sinful and unrighteous. Jesus says there's only one who is good, and that is holy God himself. That's the only one who's good and wholesome and righteous. And what a great reminder, despite the high view we often like to have of ourselves, that the reality check is the Bible tells us that by nature we are all inherently bad, sinful, evil, that's why we don't have to teach our children how to do wrong things. They naturally know how. We try and teach them how to do good and right things. It's just evidence of what the Bible teaches us. We are all inherently evil and bad. We're born sinful by nature. That's why we're magnetically inclined to do what's wrong. We're just drawn that way. Romans 7, Paul says, I know that in me that is in my flesh, he says, nothing good dwells. You can hear Paul saying, you know, at one time I, I tried to. I said, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. And he turned over the other leaf. And he said, oh, it was uglier on the other side. There's nothing good in me. I can't just turn over a new leaf and get better. I can't just clean my act up. He says, I'm just as filthy on the inside as I, as I seem like I am on the outside. He realized there was nothing good in him. 
And Jesus here gives a great reminder, only God himself is good. But see, that's why we need God in our lives. Because we need for God to replace our badness with his goodness. And God says, Tony, you're sinful, you're bad. The only thing good in your life will be me. So I want to I take away your badness and I want to supply you my goodness by my presence in your life and what I can do. And Jesus is going to seek to humble and reveal to this man who believed, no doubt, that, that he was kind of pretty good, that really he still had a major problem within his life, though he wasn't seeing it at this time. Verse 20, Jesus says to him, well, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, and honor your father and mother. So Jesus, knowing where this guy's out, he uses a very creative way now to bring to him the reality that he's not quite as good as he really thinks he is to help him see where he's really at at this time spiritually. Jesus now, to answer his original question, what shall I do? Jesus uses the law in the proper way. The law is intended to reveal to us that we're sinful, that we break the law. The law is given to us to show us you don't keep it, you keep breaking it. And Jesus uses the law now, the second half of the law, which gave commandments how to live in right relationship with fellow men. And he uses that now to provoke in this man the reality of where he was at. He says, look, well, you want to do something? You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't murder. He says, don't lie to people. Honor your father and mother. He says, look at verse 21, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, if he's not blatantly lying to Jesus, one would have to say, this was not a really bad guy. This guy seemed to be, in essence, pretty moral. He, he had, by this time, from his youth up to this point, lived a, a pretty upright and decent life in society. Not only was he successful, ambitious, responsible, and rich, he says to Jesus, I have a respect, not only a respect, he says, I even have sought to keep the commands of Scripture. I not only respect the Word of God, I try and live out the Word of God. He says, I haven't committed adultery, I'm a faithful man to my wife. He says, I don't lie to people in business, I keep that, I'm an honest man. He says, I, I don't go out and, and, and uh, you know, take advantage of other people and steal from them. I'm, I'm fair and I don't steal things from people. And he says, on top of that, you know what? I, I, I'm a good son. I, 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 my parents are aging and I honored them when I was a young man and now I take good care of them. I honor my mother and father. Now, from a social standard, I have to say that's quite a guy. That's not a bad resume ambitious, rich, successful, responsible. On top, I mean, top of that, he respects the word of God. He's a decent man in society. He doesn't lie and cheat and steal. He takes good care of his parents. I mean, uh, from all practical purposes, a lot of us would say to our young daughter, hey, that's the kind of guy you ought to marry. That's a pretty good guy there. That's a pretty decent guy. From his perspective, he seems and appears like a pretty good guy. But see, Jesus doesn't measure by social standards. Jesus measures by spiritual standards. And by spiritual standards, Jesus sees under the surface and he gets right to the heart of things. And so what's Jesus going to do? I'll tell you what he's going to do. He's going to go in now and he's going to touch a nerve right in the center of this man's heart. He touches a nerve and indicates his one biggest problem and struggle. Verse 22, Jesus, when he heard these things, the man thought he was quite impressive Jesus when he heard these things said you still lack 
one thing. Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was, the Bible says, very rich. Look what Jesus does. He identifies in this man's life that he still has one main error, whether he realized it at this point or not. Jesus says to him, you still lack one thing. One thing. What was that one thing? It was submission of his life to God's authority and letting God be in control as the ruler of his life. Jesus says, you may have kept many of the commandments, but may I bring to your attention, sir, you are in direct violation of the very first commandment, which said what? You shall have no other God before me. Jesus says, you're keeping quite a few of the commandments in relation to your fellow man, but Jesus says, may I bring to your attention, you're in major violation of the very first one that I gave, which is you shall have no other God before me. The God we worship is whatever we bow down to. It's whatever rules over us. It's whatever controls our lives and dictates our decisions and our actions. It's our master passion and the one true God, the very first commandment he gave before don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal. The very first commandment, the one true God says is you shall have no other God before me. In other words, I need to be first in your life. I need to be the one who you submit to and who rules over you and for this man, that was the struggle in his life. That was the case for this particular man. It doesn't necessarily say it has to be the case for all wealthy people, nor do I think it is. But for this particular man who Jesus knew, that was his struggle. That was his wrestling match. That was the one big stumbling block for him. Jesus saw for this man, this rich young ruler, that his wealth was the God that still ruled in his life. And because of that, Jesus meets him where he's at and he says, look, possibly you've worked very hard to acquire that wealth and you've earned it and you've achieved it, but yet the altar of worship that you bow down to now is that wealth. It's the thing that rules your life. It's the thing that dictates your decisions and your lifestyle. He had another God who reigned over him and ruled his life. And therefore, Jesus says, if you, you want to enter eternal life, we have to deal with that one big problem in your life first. And that is, Jesus says, what's going to work for you is the one thing you lack that's a hindrance and stumbling block is you're going to need to dethrone that God in your life he says so go sell everything that you have and use that money to go bless those who are less fortunate Jesus says and then you'll have eternal reward in heaven and then come and follow me so Jesus says to this man your one problem is simply this you have another God in your life and it's not me so you need to do what it takes for you to dethrone that God in your life specifically so that then you will be free to use that worship and that allegiance to the present God in your life to come and follow me, to let me be the Lord in your life, to let me be God and to let me be master over your life in the way that I ought to be. He says, do what's necessary so that you can come and follow me. Now, 
This is not just a money issue alone. Don't misinterpret it to an extreme, the text. It's not an isolated problem to the wealthy. Jesus isn't saying that it's wrong to have riches or uh, that we can't have riches and serve him too because many people do. Many people have riches and they serve Jesus. That was just this man's particular problem. That was his particular challenge. It was the thing that was hindering him and holding him back from following Jesus. So Jesus addresses it. For other people, it may be something totally different that holds them back in their life from following Jesus. There may be some other God that Jesus says to another individual, look, you need to dethrone this God in your life. You need to forsake this or leave this so that you can come and follow me. It's standing between me and you. It's the thing that's keeping you from following me. It's the thing that hinders you from making a commitment and following after me. Jesus may say to someone, look, you need to leave that relationship and come and follow me. Jesus may say, you need to give up those drugs and come and follow me. And Jesus knows that one thing that is the God over our life that rules over us at times, that is the thing that holds us back from following him. And Jesus says to this man, you need to dethrone what's ruling you so that you can come and follow me and let me rule over your life as your master. Well, Jesus exposes, ouch, (laughs) like he does in all of our lives. He exposes this sensitive nerve, puts a calling on this man's life to come follow him. And verse 23 says, but when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. When you read Matthew's account of this same story in Matthew 19, it says this. It says he went away sorrowful. Now this to me has to be one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. Here you have a man being called by Jesus and you see the personal refusal of Jesus' offer. He is so attached to his money. He is so attached to the one thing that ruled in his life that stood in the way of Jesus. He's so attached to it here that though he was sad, he was still willing to cling to that and to hold on to that and would not let it go to follow the Lord. He wouldn't give up what ruled him and stood in the way of him being able to follow Jesus. And you know what, gang? Many people all around this planet are faced with a similar decision in different ways and sadly many people respond the same when you share the gospel don't be discouraged if somebody chooses not to follow jesus called this man and he chose not to follow and and what a startling thing a reminder of another aspect of a gift that when it's offered a gift can be rejected the benefits and the opportunities of what a gift presents it cannot be part it can be declined this man declined he went away sorrowful because he was very rich jesus calls him to follow but he uses his free will he heard jesus's voice but he said i can't i can't now this guy maybe made a lot of good decisions up to this point this was not one of his better decisions this is a bad deal Here this guy doesn't evaluate the opportunity for whatever various reasons in his life, maybe like pride and selfishness and fear. He chooses to cling on to his wealth and control over his own life 
and he chooses to deny the emptiness within and he chooses to pass up the opportunity to have his sins forgiven and to have eternal life and eternal reward in heaven forever because of what he was facing. Well, verse 24, as Jesus saw this happen and saw that he became very sorrowful, Jesus in response says, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus, seeing the choice that this man had just made to deny his offer to follow him, makes a very true evaluation. Though riches don't have to be a deterrent in a person's life from following the Lord, the truth is, sadly, Jesus says they often are. And if you think about that logically, it makes sense. Riches and wealth grant a person a natural sense of security. They give a person a sense and an ability to have a self-sufficient lifestyle. If you consider being very wealthy or being very rich, riches are an efficient tool like a god that you can use to solve your problems. Having excess riches gives you the opportunity to obtain whatever you want or need. You could say, instead of, for the rich person, instead of having to pray, they can just pay. Do you understand what I'm saying? Their riches can very easily be utilized like a god. It can solve problems. It can obtain what they want. They don't necessarily have to depend on God. They can depend on their own resources that they have at their disposal to address the things that they need to in their life. And for this man, he had to contend with a stumbling block because of that, a stumbling block of of self-sufficiency and that independent spirit of, of being able to take care of things on his own. And that's why Jesus says in verse 24 how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. See, this guy was used to solving all his own problems, no doubt. And because of that, it's then hard at times to see the real need in your life. It becomes difficult to sense the need and you gradually become blinded to it. That's why Jesus says, verse 25, quite honestly, he says, it's easier for a camel, the largest animal, easier for a camel to go through the small eye of the, a needle than for a rich person to be able to enter into the kingdom of God. Now that sounds like an impossibility for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, a threading needle, unless you got a really good blender. <laughs> it's going to be awful hard to get a camel. To, and that's the idea. Jesus is saying it's so difficult it's almost like an impossibility. Well, that's pretty startling that Jesus would make that evaluation and I don't think that Jesus is saying that critically. I really don't. Jesus loves the poor and Jesus loves the rich. And I think Jesus says this compassionately. I think Jesus says this caringly. He says with honest compassion, understanding the struggle that it is for the rich person. That it's challenging for them. That there's a stumbling block that they have to overcome and he wants to warn and he wants to caution them. Look, it... It's going to be challenging. And the danger that wealth and riches can supply in the sincere challenge. Isn't it interesting how oftentimes we envy people who God's blessed and they're wealthy, they're successful, and, and maybe they're rich, and, and we envy, oh, must be nice. Oh, must be so nice. So nice to be rich, not to have any problems, to just be able to have life so, e life so easy for them. And Jesus says, uh-uh-uh, not so. For the rich person has to struggle with things that you don't. 
The person who is rich has a set of challenges all their own, so don't think it's just easier because they have riches. Because they have a struggle and a challenging stumbling block to overcome that many a people who don't have such don't wrestle with. I mean, think about it. To preach the gospel to the poor person, they're looking for something. They're hoping for something better beyond this life because they have nothing. A lot of times it's very easy to evangelize someone who's poor because they sense their need. They live with their need and they're hoping, I hope there's something beyond this. this. For the rich person, it's a total different thing. And because of that, Jesus says, it's a very challenging thing. And in compassion, Jesus says, it's hard for them. You know, many times, we need to, we need to preach the gospel to the poor. Well, we need to preach the gospel and pray for the rich. Because there, Jesus says, it's challenging for them. And in compassion, he says, that's a, it's a tough obstacle for them to overcome. So he makes this strong statement, making it sound almost impossible. And when the disciples hear that in verse 26, they say in response, Lord, who, who then can be saved? You make it sound like it's an impossibility for people to get saved. Who then can be saved? To which Jesus says, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Jesus gives a great assurance. He indicates that getting saved is indeed a miracle of God. Not just for the rich person, for any person. Because salvation and getting saved and trying to solve our own spiritual issues is impossible. We can't save ourselves. That's what we're talking about. It is a miracle of God's grace for anyone to get saved. What's impossible with men, which is to make themselves right with God, to get right with God, to be able to have their sins forgiven, to make themselves acceptable for heaven. Jesus says, independently trying to solve your spiritual issues, that's impossible. But, he says, what's impossible with men is possible, it becomes possible with God. When God gets involved in a person's life, everything becomes possible. Because God can forgive sins and God can change a person's heart and God can accept a person by the free gift he offers them into eternal life and see the things that are impossible with our own human efforts, those things become possible when a person joins their life to God and says, God, I need your involvement in my life. And listen, this verse, keep in mind, is attached to salvation. Maybe you're looking at someone and you're thinking... It's impossible. There's no way they're getting saved. Well, Jesus says, well, the things which are impossible with men, they are possible with God. If God gets involved, it's possible. It's possible. Hey, remember that as you go into the Christmas season and try and share the gospel with people around you. Well, Peter, hearing these things, I'm sure you're not surprised, steps up and he says, Lord, we have left all and followed you. This guy wouldn't leave his riches, but this was true. The disciples had. They had left their businesses and their fishing nets and, and their comforts and their conveniences and their families going out and ministering with the Lord. And, and Peter says, Lord, what about us? Lord, we have left all. We did 
give up and forsake certain things to, to follow you as your servants and, and to follow you in the calling and the ministry you had for us. And Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake, he says, of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come, eternal life. So notice Jesus assures with a promise those who do choose to let go of what may stand in the way of following Jesus as Savior and Lord, to let go of whatever would stand in the way of following Jesus in service and some calling or purpose he has for their life. And Jesus says, look, any sacrifices you make, he says, it's true. To follow me often requires leaving behind certain things. It may mean forsaking certain things and letting go of, of a house. It may mean letting go of possessions. It may letting go of an opportunity to maybe be rich or successful. It, it may involve leaving certain critical family relationships in order to be able to follow Jesus in some way. But Jesus promises, I will restore back, not just equal. He says, I'll restore back in reward in this life and in the life to come, anything that you leave behind. You can't outgive me, Jesus says. I will give back anything that you let go of, both now and in the age to come. Hey, my challenge to us this morning is this. Today, what stands in the way of you following Jesus? And my question is this. Are you willing to do whatever it takes? It's a choice. We can choose, like the rich young ruler, to cling to what stands in the way and walk away. That will lead to a life of regret now and also eternally. Or we can choose to make a step of faith and to trust the Lord and say, Lord, I'll let go in whatever it takes. I'm following you and I'll let you work out all the details and it will lead to a life of great reward both now and in the age to come. Let's stand. Let's turn our hearts in prayer to the Lord as we worship a final song. Father, thank you for your word, for how it speaks into our lives, how it addresses where we're at and causes us to consider the things that are not only true, but Lord, spiritual and eternal at the depth of our soul. And Father, you know where each and every one is in this room this morning. And I pray, I pray by the grace of God that, Lord, you would give them the grace in their spirit to respond to you, to choose to follow you and to set aside whatever may stand in the way. Lord, bring them to that place of decision. For I ask in Jesus' name, amen.